morning to everyone. Particularly want to recognize Professor uh, John Corzin of the Wake Forest University School of Law Appellate Clinic and the students that are with him today. Uh, welcome. We understand you'll be with us for several arguments, and uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, I'm going to call the first case, which is Cryan et al. versus the National Council of Young Men's Christians Associations of the United States of America et al. And we will hear from the appellants. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the court, and may it please the court, my name is Bobby Jenkins, and along with my colleague Don Higley, we represent the plaintiff's appellants in this matter. We would like to reserve at least five minutes for rebuttal, and Mr. Higley will be delivering the rebuttal on behalf of the plaintiffs. We are here today on a peripheral issue that arose out of initially what was a constitutional challenge to one of the statute of limitation revival provisions of the Safe Child Act, which was passed unanimously by our General Assembly in 2019. All of the plaintiffs in this case, grown men now, were sexually abused as young boys when they were attending programs at the Kernersville YMCA. The perpetrator was a man by the last name Pegram. What he did to these, young these men when they were young boys was, was vile. All of the statutes of limitation for these plaintiffs expired under the old prior statute of limitation when they turned 21, after three years after the removal of the minor disability. After the Safe Child Act was passed, it had two revival provisions, one a two-year catch-all window from January 1, 2020 to December 31, 2021 that allowed any victim of child sexual abuse whose statute of limitations had expired to bring a claim. The other revival provision of the Safe Child Act is found and was codified. The two-year revival window was not codified. The other provision was codified in 1-17E and provided that a victim of child sexual abuse could bring a claim within two years of the conviction of the perpetrator, the criminal, convic criminal conviction of the perpetrator. While we have argued this case from Judge Gottlieb Ford based on the fact that it was brought within two years of the conviction of uh, Pegram, the perpetrator. It actually was, the, the initial complaint was filed in February 2020, so it also fell under the two-year revival window, the general revival window that was part of the Safe Child Act. After we filed the complaint, the defendant filed a Rule 12b-6 motion to dismiss and raised a constitutional challenge saying that we had failed to state a claim because the statute of limitations was unconstitutional pursuant to the substantive due process provisions of Article I, Section 19 of our Constitution. All of the constitutional challenges to all of the Safe Child Act cases are state court-based, state constitution-based, because the U.S. Supreme Court long ago held that there is no, uh, there is no federal limit under, in the federal constitution to reviving a statute of limitations. So they're all brought under one dash, uh, section, uh, Article I, Section 19, the substantive due process provision. They couched their uh, challenge as an as-applied challenge, that it was unconstitutional as applied to the YMCA. We, looking at that, realized and believe and know that it is actually a facial challenge, that, it, that a decision that that revival provision or either revival provision is unconstitutional will eliminate the claims of everyone who has brought a claim under the Safe Child Act, one of those two revival provisions. Realizing that, we filed a motion to transfer, asking, asking, Judge Guy, asking the, the Superior Court in Forsyth County to deem that the the challenge was indeed facial, not as applied, and to transfer per 1-267.1 to transfer the facial constitutional challenge to Wake County uh, to then be submitted to Mr. Chief Justice to appoint a three-judge panel to hear the case. That matter came on before Judge Gottlieb in Forsyth County. He heard both the he heard both their motion to dismiss and our motion to transfer. And Judge Gottlieb, to his credit, went 
far beyond what anyone would expect even a, an incredible trial judge to do. He gave the litigants probably two and a half hours to argue. He was incredibly well prepared. He'd read the statutes, he'd read the cases, he'd read probably 200 pages of material. And at the end of the day, he granted our transfer motion and sent the case to Wake County for appointment of a three-judge panel. Can I ask you a couple um, points of clarification Please. about um, the statute and, and who it impacts? So um, if there had been no SAFE Act uh, changes to the statute of limitations, the, um, in this case, uh, are you acknowledging the, sta the statute otherwise would have run in this case? So in other words, you, you acknowledge you need that, those changes in order to, to bring this suit? Absolutely, yes. And is there a category of people for whom the statute has not yet run, but who the, the SAFE Act would also impact? Essentially not um, reviving a, an expired statute of limitations, but extending the statute of limitations longer than what the existing law would have would have allowed. Is that, does that category of people exist in your view? Uh, I don't think so, Your Honor, and I'll, I'll tell you why. The, in addition to the two revival provisions, the within two years of conviction and the general revival, two-year revival window, which is closed, the General Assembly in the Safe Child Act also extended from three years to 10 years the period in which a victim of child sexual abuse can bring a claim after the, the disability of minority is removed, all right? The only person who would need to rely upon the two, within two years of, of conviction provision is someone whose underlying statute of limitations had already expired. So say someone was 17 when the Safe Child Act went into effect. They would now have until age 28 to bring a claim for being a victim of child sexual abuse. It is undisputed that the General Assembly can't extend an unexpired statute of limitations. If they bring that, that claim within before they turn 28, it is irrelevant whether the, the perpetrator was convicted or not. They have that full 10-year window after the removal of the disability to bring the case. But the only person I guess, who would do this, I'm sorry, Your Honor. The, well, well, look, what I'm struggling with is, an, an, um, so let's assume, and I'm not suggesting this, <clears throat> this is the law, but assume the law under our state constitution is that if a statute of limitations has expired, you have a vested right at that point not to be sued for that particular cause, cause of action or claim, and that reviving that expired statute of limitations would violate some principle of due process, let's say. But that same doctrine would say if the statute of limitations had not yet run, that it's not a due process violation for the legislature to change the law. So for example, a statute of limitations that's three years and you're two years into the three years and then it's changed to be 10 years and you think, well, this is bad because I was about, it was about to run and I'd be, I'd know, you know, I can't be sued for this, but now I've got, there's 10 more years to wait and see if I'm sued. But that would not be the constitutional violation. If, if that were the holding, it just seems to me like there are two different categories of people impacted by the statute, as I think you're, we're gonna hear for your friend in a minute, and they are really only challenging the constitutionality as to one group of people, not the other, which is kind of the traditional notion of an as-applied challenge. So as to the people that's, for whom the statute is not yet run, it's not unconstitutional as to them, any of the changes. What, what's your response to that? Correct, and they, they mentioned in their brief, which I, I found a bit confusing, the idea that no one ever addressed the idea of the constitutionality of the statute for someone whose uh, limitations period had vested, if that is the law, right? And we, like, right, you don't agree with that, which I understand, the yes. Um, the, again, as I, the thing, go, go back to the idea of someone does not bring a claim by age 28, so they, they're, they're under age 21 when the, the Safe Child Act goes into effect. So they now have until age 28 under the base statute of limitations to bring the claim. If they don't bring that claim by age 28, then that statute of limitations has expired and they would argue that that is vested and no claim can be brought and that bringing it then 10 years later within two years of the perpetrator being convicted is reviving that statute that had expired. 
And so it's our contention, Your Honor, that, and I think it's what Judge Gottlieb held in determining it was a facial challenge, was that um, the only person, and, it, and the only class is, is, is children who are sex abuse victims, the only person who would need to bring a, need to rely upon the within two years of conviction is someone whose underlying statute limitations that was extended to age 28 has expired. And they would absolutely argue that that's a vested right when that statute expires and that this is, is reviving that base statute of limitations. Either that or we have two totally different, totally separate statutes of limitation because it all flows from the child who was a victim of sexual abuse. And so... So, so let, let me follow up yes, with sir. that a bit. Um, I tried to do a, some math, a timeline, trying to figure out uh, is everyone that's, you know, put, putting aside those for whom the statute of limitation uh, has, had already expired, but people who would benefit from this, again, looking solely at as applied versus facial. In other words, if there's any category of people for whom the statute would be constitutional, then that would be an as applied, whereas facial says there are no circumstances. So I, I came up with a scenario of an individual who um, doesn't file in the ninth year on this 10-year extension, and then there's a criminal conviction. So instead of having to file within 10 years, the person now gets an extra year to file, or conceivably up to almost two years extra. Uh, why would that, uh, uh, first off, is, is that, is my interpretation of those statutes, is that accurate? And if it is, then why would that not convert this to as applied? I do think that it's accurate what you're conveying, Your Honor. I just, I just don't think they piggyback in that way. If someone files, and it would be anyone who was under age 21 on December 1, 2019, their statute, if they were a victim of child sexual abuse and had not turned 21 before December 1, 2019, then they have until age 28 to bring that claim. And that is clearly constitutional. Nobody challenges that. If they bring that claim before they turn age 28, the two years of conviction is totally irrelevant. Doesn't matter. If they bring that claim after they turn age 28, but within two years of conviction, that statute of limitations has still expired. The, the, the base age 28 statute of limitations has still expired, and this provision is essentially reviving it based on an event unrelated to the, to the uh, abuse, but related to the criminal conviction. So they're either going to file before they're 28 or after they're 28, Your Honor. And if they file after they're 28, the defendant would have the argument that the statute of limitations has expired. And the only way to bring this claim under the two year, within two years of conviction, would be to say that we have revived a, a statute of limitations that has expired. But, but under subsection E of 1-17, it says notwithstanding the provisions of, and it says subsection A, uh, which is the, uh, uh, let's see, make sure I'm reading this right. Oh, I'm sorry, let's see. It's, it's D. It says, notwithstanding the provisions of subsection D, which is the 10-year statute of limitation. So even though the 10 years would have expired, this, in effect, would expand it beyond that. Now, if you had an individual that waited till uh, year 14, uh, you know, my, my, my point is, if an individual could bring their claim under subsection E before the expiration of subsection E, but after the expiration of subsection D, that seems to me to, to be a, uh, to, to 
undermine an argument that there's no scenario uh, where uh, this would not be argued to be unconstitutional because the statute of limitations had run. Your Honor, I think the, the constitutional question would be, can the General Assembly say that notwithstanding what might be an expired statute of limitations, you can still bring this claim? And it, to a broader point, sir, I, I would say this, that as this court is aware, the, there is a case now at the Court of Appeals that will be heard June 5 that will address the constitutional, constitutionality of the revival provisions. Everyone who has brought a, a, a challenge, constitutional challenge to one of these revival provisions, and we've handled a lot of them, has made the same argument that it violates substantive due process under Article One, Section 19 of our Constitution. Whatever the court's disposition in this case, the reality is it's gonna have very little impact on what happens for this defendant because the decision of the Court of Appeals in the case to be heard in six weeks, and then whether this court ultimately weighs in on that, will settle the issue for all involved because everyone challenging the statute is right, saying that it's a vested right. Now that's born of a case in 1933, long before substantive due process had been adopted by this court, but that's the argument. If and it, it, it's either a vested right or it's not, whether it's whether you argue it facial or as applied, whatever the court decides in terms of is there a vested constitutional right or is there not, it's going to decide it for everyone. There, there, there is no in between. So while we're, we're dealing with them as to whether this was facial or as applied, the reality is that in, in bringing this appeal, if they had gone the normal route and, and, and just dealt with this as, as applied, I mean, as, as a facial challenge, allowed it to go to a three-judge panel, they might well be the, the defendant arguing the case in June. Instead, they did not. The defendant in that case asserted a facial challenge, and we joined with them together to uh, ask the court to transfer it to a three-judge panel. That was done. Mr. Chief Justice appointed the panel, and that was heard. And so whether this, that particular, their particular argument, whether that revival provision is as applied or facial, in some respects is irrelevant to the ultimate decision that's going to be made as to whether either of those provisions is constitutional. Because it, it's either a vested, what we would call now a fundamental right, older cases call it a vested right. So this is a good transition because I, I know you're getting a little short on time and I do want to talk about sort of the first issue that's presented here before us which is about the, the writ of certiorari. So I, I take it then from the argument you're making, uh, your position is there was so as, as you know, the, the majority of the Court of Appeals said the reason, as I understand the opinion, to, that uh, a, the writ should be issued is the need to resolve the question of which of the two potential courts that could adjudicate the issue you're talking about has the jurisdiction to do so because of the harm to everyone, your client, uh, their clients, ever, to go through all the process you're talking about now only to learn later that the court that was deciding it had no jurisdiction to do that and you have to start over again. Um, but your position is it's an abuse of discretion to, to do that. So explain why that, if that was the reasoning in the minds of the majority, what, what, what was wrong with that? Well, so the defendant initially appealed and, and appealed claiming it was venue. It was a, a substantial right that venue had been transferred to Wake County. That, that was a, a losing argument that what was transferred was subject matter jurisdiction over the facial challenge. Uh, Rule 42B4 itself says that the case remains in the original court after the facial challenge is dealt with by a three-judge panel. So whether it's you know, significance or important, as Judge Carpenter noted in his dissent, this, this particular issue, because what they, it wasn't so much your Honor, I think the underlying issue, really, in the issue that, that begs for this court to clarify it, is what, what role does the trial judge, what can he or she play in looking behind the label that a defendant gives to a constitutional challenge and determine the, the reality of the impact of that particular challenge? Yeah, that's one, it seems to me that one 
way to read the dissent is the dissent was saying uh, the, that the question of whether it's facial or as applied even is really one for the three-judge panel. You could read to say essentially once we've asserted this is a facial challenge that a trial court, a single superior court judge here in case is supposed to stop and say it goes to the three-judge panel and they'll f work out everything from there. Is that, is that, do you agree with that position or do you think, in other words, who gets to decide whether it's facial or as applied in your view? Well, Your Honor, I, I do disagree with that slightly in that I, I do think it is imperative that the trial judge have the ability to look behind the label. The crime decision, which seems to say you're stuck with whatever label they give it, uh, the subsequent decisions of the Court of Appeals disagree with that. There was a decision, uh, if I can find it, Your Honor, Kelly in uh, late 2022 that said you don't have to stick with the label that you can go behind it and look at, at the substance of what happened. There was a case in early this year, the court, a panel of the Court of Appeals acknowledged that Crine and Kelly seemed to disagree with each other, and it's up in the air as to what the trial judge can do. But the trial judge actually only just makes the recommendation as to whether or not it should be referred to a three-judge panel anyway. Isn't that right? Well, as, Your Honor, as I read 1-267.1, if the trial judge determines that the constitutional challenge was facial, the, the statute says shall. Shall transfer it to Wake County to then be referred to Mr. Chief Justice for the appointment of a three-judge panel. But ultimately, the Chief Justice holding the office would make the ultimate determination as to whether or not everything would be in that direction. Isn't that right? Right. There is, there is nothing in the statute that compels uh, the Chief Justice to appoint that three-judge panel. It compels it to be transferred to Judge Ridgway as, as re chief resident here in Wake County, who can then refer it to Mr. Chief Justice. But there is nothing in the statutory scheme that then requires the Chief Justice to take that extra step. And on your position concerning even the Court of Appeals having erred by uh, taking on its opportunity to issue the writ of certiorari, uh, isn't your reliance on this court's case in State versus Ricks misplaced in that Rule 2 is not invoked here? Correct. Rule, rule 2 is not invoked. That, that Ricks was considering both the propriety of the grant of, of the petition of cert and also the overlay of Rule 2. I thought Ricks was applicable in that how it, it assessed the, the abuse of discretion possibility of, of granting the petition, but I will concede we are not dealing with a Rule 2 situation. We were not dealing with that in Cryan. What, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you, wouldn't it then be an overreach by this court to say that the Court of Appeals doesn't have the right to invoke the writ of certiorari if we're not construing rule two being inappropriately applied because the discretion is left to the Court of Appeals to utilize the writ of certiorari as it sees fit under rule 21. I, I don't disagree with that and your honor what I would say is that uh, I even gave some thought as to whether to even continue to raise the, the issue of the error in granting the writ of cert because subsequent to that, subsequent to the crying decision, far from in granting the petition, they said they wanted to clarify and give guidance to the trial court. What they did was muddy the waters, and now there's divergent opinions at the Court of Appeals as to what role the trial court plays. So actually, the, the bench and the bar would both be better served if this court were to resolve that, that issue uh, despite the fact that, that we think that the, the, the criteria for granting the petition were not met, but uh, it, certainly, it certainly has created an issue that is uncertain. I mean, if this case were to go back to Judge Gottlieb, for example, does he follow Cryan and is he stuck with the, the label they give it? Does he follow Kelly and look behind, behind that and make a determination that it's, that it's facial, like which is the determination he made originally. So yes, I, uh, we think the petition was, was improperly granted, that it didn't fit the criteria for doing so, but in context of an issue that now has been created and may impact future litigants, it would certainly be in the, as I said, in the interest of both the bench and the bar if this court could resolve what role can a trial judge play in determining the nature of a constitutional challenge in interpreting 1-267.1 in context of Rule 
the council let me ask you one more because i don't want to get into your rebuttal time but i think one other issue then that we're going to hear from your friend is suppose we conclude that this was not an abuse of discretion by the uh the court of appeals to issue the writ of certiorari <coughs> i think we're going to hear from your friend that that's actually the only issue that's before this court now because we are limited having not issued uh um our own uh, order granting discretionary review in this case, we're limited solely to the issue in which there's a disagreement between the dissent and the majority, and the dissent, I think we'll hear from your friend at least, never got to the merits of the second issue you present to us. So we'll, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. And, and you're right, that is their position, but I disagree with that. Judge, Judge Carpenter clearly thought the, the, the grant of the petition was improper. But at the end, he also says that in his view, the proper place for this issue to be decided was the three-judge panel, which means he has to agree, or he has to, he has to believe and have determined that Judge Gottlieb found that it was a facial challenge and had the right to submit it. Their position, or at least what the, the two-judge majority below determined, was that he didn't even have that authority at all. So, so it's I, in the I very end of his opinion, Your Honor, where I, or his dissent, where I, I think uh, Judge Carpenter makes it clear that he disagrees with their view that a facial challenge, that, that the trial judge did not determine a facial challenge had been raised. I, I do think that's the strongest argument you can make. I, the one question I had is, do you, should there be an obligation on a dissent at the Court of Appeals to provide reasoning? Because I agree with you, we can certainly infer that that was Judge Carpenter's conclusion, but, and, and he may have had reasoning, but maybe we're, we can only speculate about what that reasoning was. Do you think it's enough just to say, this is an area of disagreement and that triggers our review? I, I would say in this case, yes, I, I can't address that generally, Your Honor. I haven't thought about it generally. But in this case, I would say yes, because the, the, the issue was, could Judge, could Judge Gottlieb look beyond their label and, and determine that it was facial? And that's what Judge Carpenter said he had done. So he does disagree with them. And I don't know that you need any reasoning, any, any additional rationale behind it. What, this is what we did, or this is what they did. I disagree with it, and we bring the issue to this court. Thank you for your time. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby, and may it please the court. I'm Lauren Lapidus with Nelson Mullins for the defendant, Kernersville YMCA. This case really centers on the text and the purpose of Rule 21. There's really one threshold issue uh, to bring up, and that's Appellate Rule 16. Because I think we've heard, you know, argument for uh, probably half of my friend for the, the plaintiff's time about the merits of the case, right? But North Carolina Rule of Appellate Procedure 16B says the sole ground of appeal based on a dissent in the Supreme Court of North Carolina is limited to consideration of only those issues are, and I think Justice Deeds, this addresses your question about speculation, that are specifically set out in the dissenting opinion as the basis for this dissent. And I think a fair read of Judge Carpenter's separate opinion, I'll call it, because I don't think it is a true dissent, it doesn't disagree with, it doesn't debate, it does not address the merits analysis of the majority, right? The majority went on the record and said, this is an as-applied challenge the Superior Court got it wrong. But in the dissent, all that Judge Carpenter talked about in his separate opinion is the interest of justice factor. And I think that really presents a problem, a threshold problem, for this court's appellate jurisdiction under 7A30 subsection 2. You take a look at Judge Carpenter's opinion, it's labeled as a dissent, but if it does not address the majority's conclusion that the, that the wise argument, our argument on appeal had merit, and it doesn't, that's a problem. Why? Because this court in the Button versus Level 4 communications case said something really important when it comes to our certiorari analysis. In North Carolina, there are two requirements to show that issuance of a writ of certiorari by an appellate court is appropriate. One, there has to be merit to an appellant's substantive underlying arguments and the interests of justice support the writ. But last year in the Button case, this court concluded as a threshold matter, merit to the underlying argument on appeal is a prerequisite to this court's consideration of the interests of justice feature of the certiorari analysis. And Judge Carpenter's opinion doesn't address that issue, not at all. But what so, about your friend's 
argument here that because uh, Judge Harper does say, I would uh, allow it to go to the three-judge panel. And you can infer from that, and necessarily then, Judge Carpenter must believe that it's a facial challenge because that would be the only basis to allow it to be transferred. And therefore, that, you know, that's the hook that we now have to address the second issue. What's your response to that? Well, I think, Justice Deese, the problem there is it's pure conjecture and speculation because you have one portion that in the light most favorable to the plaintiff might well be construed that way. But the problem is Appellate Rule 16 says that the reasons have to be specifically laid out in the dissenting opinion. Judge Carpenter's separate, separate opinion has to go on the record and say, I disagree with the wise argument. This is a facial challenge. There's no merit to the underlying arguments. That has to be said. Because there are other portions of Judge Carpenter's separate opinion that says, well, if the three-judge panel thinks that it really was an as-applied challenge, then they should remand it back to the three-judge panel. And that's, that's the catch-22. That's the speculation because he's, he's hedging his bets in the opinion in separate areas. It breeds hot and cold in separate portions of the opinion, and that's not what Appellate Rule 16 requires. Um, count, count, uh, go ahead. Well, well, I just wanted to go back to um, the quote from Button and the notion that there has to be merit to the argument. And it seems to me, isn't there some daylight between a meritorious argument and an argument that carries the day? In other words, it, it might not be totally frivolous. There might be some merit it should be considered, but that you don't, you don't have to establish that it's correct and will prevail. I see that dichotomy, Justice Earls, and I, I, I read your opinion that you wrote for this court thoroughly. And what your dissenting opinion says is, in determining whether a petition for writ of certiorari should be granted or denied, an appellate, appellate court must assess whether the claim has merit. But Judge Carpenter's separate opinion didn't address the claim whether, whether there was merit to the underlying argument. There was, there's nothing in that opinion that challenges, debates, or addresses that we raised anything other than what the majority said we raised. So therefore, under 7830 subsection 2, there is no appellate jurisdiction. Counsel, just uh, looking at the penultimate sentence in um, Justice Carpenter's uh, dissent, it reads, because I would determine jurisdiction to decide the constitutional issues proper before the three-judge panel in Wake County, I would deny the petition for writ of cert. I therefore respectfully dissent. Uh, doesn't that indicate pretty clearly that uh, he concluded that it was a facial challenge? Otherwise, how would the three-judge panel have jurisdiction? Well, I think, Justice Allen, that's, that's sort of the ambiguity with that, with that separate opinion, is I think the opinion is saying, we're set, we, we, the interest of justice would require we send this to the three-judge panel so the three-judge panel can figure it out. And if they think it's wrong, they should send it back. But that presents all kinds of problems with this jurisdiction. Why, why isn't this simply a judge giving more than one reason for the judge's position? Well, be because there's nowhere in that opinion that challenges that we raise anything other than as, as applied challenge. And rule, Appellate Rule 16 that says the reasons have to be specifically set forth. And that sentence, I, I would say, Justice Allen, is quite ambiguous. Well, I think the be because means for this reason, right? And then he says, I would determine jurisdiction uh, to decide is the issue is proper with the three-judge panel. The three-judge panel doesn't have jurisdiction unless it's a facial challenge, correct? That's correct. So doesn't that ipso facto mean that he's concluding that it's well, a facial challenge? I, I don't think so, because he's saying in the same breath that if it really isn't one, it should be sent back, and that the three-judge panel should decide what it is. I think the gravamen of that separate opinion uh, talks about the propriety of there is this de facto system built in to the trinity of controlling statutes where the three-judge panel is better suited than the Court of Appeals to make that decision. And Thank you. Just to, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just to follow up to what I think, so I take it, you're, you're, what you're arguing is that your interpretation of Rule 16 is that there's an obligation on a dissenter, the Court of Appeals, if that dissenter wants this court to take up whatever the issue is on which they're dissenting, to provide legal reasoning for their position and not just to dissent say, and say I'm dissenting, and that your, your interpretation is that because sentence at the very end of the opinion is really just saying I'm dissenting but not providing any reason of why it's a facial challenge, not as applied, and so there's nothing for this court to compare to the majority's reasoning and say who, who is correct here. Is that I think that's right, saying? Justice Deese. I think when we're talking about appellate jurisdiction, I think we want to be really sure because it's an on, it's an on and off switch. There's no in-between. 
So when we have the, the language of Rule 16 and, and the ambiguities in that separate opinion, I think that's problematic. Um, but I guess the, the one concern is if we start to go down this kind of rabbit hole of parsing through dissents to say, did you do a good enough job dissenting to give us jurisdiction? We, you know, we really could create a mess. We've already done that with uh, the other basis to file a notice of appeal, which is substantial constitutional questions. There's not a right to appeal on that basis anymore. It's basically a, you know, a second PDR because every time you get one of those notices of appeal, the other side will file a motion to dismiss and say it's not substantial, and it kind of feels like discretion on our part deciding what we're going to do with that. And I'm, I am a little concerned that the path you're asking us to go on here is suddenly dissent start to feel discretionary. Are we, you know, have the, has the dissent said enough that we'll, we'll agree it's really a dissent? What well, do you think? Justice Teach, I'm really glad you mentioned the PDR route because when you're not sure, that's what the appropriate course is to invoke this court's discretionary appellate jurisdiction through clear-cut means and doesn't leave this court in a position of uncertainty. And, you know, that would be the preferred course here. But the real issue before the court is whether the cert petition should have been allowed. And when you look at the standard of review, in order to reverse the majority opinion, this court must conclude that the issuance of the writ was manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it could not possibly be the result of a reasoned decision. And on this record, such demanding criteria aren't met. Number one reason why cert was reasonable, not an abuse of discretion, guidance to the lower courts. The majority below appropriately provided guidance and clarity to the trial courts on how the three-judge panel transfers under 1267.1, 1-81.1, and Rule 42b4 work as they pertain to constitutional challenges that arise under the SAFE Act. And this is a convoluted issue which really had limited jurisprudence at the time the writ was issued. Thus, the majority appropriately allowed the writ to provide guidance to our trial courts about how superior courts should distinguish facial from as-applied constitutional challenges and transfer, if at all, a properly raised facial challenge to a three-judge panel in Wake County or let it remain. Reason number two, judicial economy. This case deals with very sensitive issues, and I think I, my, my friend for the plaintiffs correctly noted it. They're very sensitive issues. Uh, alleged sexual abuse from nine different plaintiffs. But when we look at what happened here, the Court of Appeals opinion explains that this is a subject matter jurisdiction issue, right? So this three-judge panel has jurisdictional consequences. So considering the sensitive allegations about what's going on, the majority acted well within its broad discretion under Rule 21 to avoid really a worse situation than what happened in the Holdstock case, which was there after four years of litigation, the Court of Appeals had to vacate the summary judgment order and return everything to the starting line to, to come all over again. And I think I, I, would, I would point to uh, Rule 11C Supplement, page 296. Rule 11C Supplement, page 296. This is one of the trial briefs that, that my friend for the plaintiff put in the record, and this is a quote, and I encourage the court to read this. Quote, none of the parties nor this court wish to find themselves back in Forsyth County years from now regarding re-arguing these issues. And they have the law wrong, but that's precisely the point on, on judicial economy, considering this very sensitive subject matter. And particularly so on this, this really pretty, pr pretty undisputed record that there was no facial challenge and that a facial challenge was, purported facial challenge was sent to a court that has absolutely no subject matter jurisdiction to consider it. The, I think when you look at Judge Carpenter's separate, separate opinion, he talks about how the mat matter may be remanded back to the trial court upon any initial determination by the three judge panel that it lacks jurisdiction to rule on the challenge, but the matter really can't be remanded because it never left the Superior Court Division in the first place, it always remains. So the three judge panel doesn't make an initial determination. It was one that was already made by the single Superior Court judge who transferred the case to a three judge panel in the first instance. So I asked your friend this question, but you know, one interpretation of, of the dissent is that um, essentially when you assert this is a facial challenge, that the, the single Superior Court judge says, okay, that's the end of my role, let me transfer to three judge panel, which will then review that question and if it concludes actually it's as applied, send it back or otherwise decide it, but the, you, know, you can infer from that the idea that the single judge should not be deciding the issue. Do you, do you read the dissent that way or is that, was the dissent getting something else there? I don't read the dissent that way, Justice Deeds. I read this, the dissent as, as really making a very... I guess my question is if that's not what was arguing there, what, how is the dissent getting to this notion that the three-judge panel may at some point move the case back? 
what would be the authority, what, what, what would they be doing that would cause them to then send it back? Well, I think that's the problem. And that's the problem I see with this sort of idea of jurisdictional ping pong, because you have uh, one superior court judge, and then you have three. But you might have two, because one could dissent. And you know, this, is, this is troubling, because it doesn't set, sit well with really the structure of our general court of justice in any sense, or this court's precedent. From time immemorial, this court has said that no appeal lies from one superior court judge to another as to its legal conclusions. The three-judge panel, right, is only statutorily charged under that trinity of controlling statutes that I mentioned about whether determining whether a facial challenge transferred to it is either successful or unsuccessful. But they're not charged by statute or otherwise to review the legal rulings of other judges of the superior court. So the matter really can't be remanded because it never left. So I think the dissent's argument really weakens the Court of Appeals as an institution because its precise role as an intermediate appellate court conducting de novo review on a pure issue of law is to correct errors. And that's precisely what it did. Um, plus, you know, it, it's really the published opinion of the Court of Appeals here that creates precedential authority for the trial bench to kind of figure out how to navigate this, this difficult situation. And I think there is some mention in the dissent about, well, now the certiorari floodgates are going to open because we've, we've allowed one, now there's no stopping it. But I think that, doesn't, that really misses the mark. And I, I think the point is, if you provide guidance, good guidance to the trial court, which this did, help distinguish between properly raised facial challenges under Rule 42 before, as applied challenges and facial challenges, then you're going to get more trial courts getting it right on the first instance. And when they get it right on the first instance, then there, there are going to be much fewer certiorari petitions. Counsel, <clears throat> as a general rule, uh, does a question of subject matter jurisdiction Will, it, will that sustain an interlocutory appeal? It will not. Isn't this a subject matter jurisdiction issue? I mean, in other words, can't your, doesn't your argument about judicial economy uh, apply to every case? I, I don't think it does, Justice Allen. I think you have a case here, when, when you talk about every case, I think we have a case here where we have nine plaintiffs allegedly, alleging sensitive allegations of child sexual abuse. I don't think anybody um, would want to put those nine plaintiffs through trial twice on this issue. I just, I, I, certainly that, that is not manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it could not possibly be the result of a reasoned decision. So are you arguing that the, uh, the subject matter of the, the claims and the number of plaintiffs provides a basis or grounds for an interlocutory appeal when we otherwise wouldn't allow one if the issue is simply a question of subject matter jurisdiction? Well, Justice Allen, it didn't come up on an interlocutory appeal pursuant to a traditional notice of appeal. It came up on a certiorari petition. And I think the language of Appellate Rule 21 really answers your question quite well, because the text and purpose of that rule, I think the text refers to appropriate circumstances. And I think the purpose of that rule is necessarily to accord each appellate court broad discretion to weigh the particular facts and circumstances of every case that comes before it. So absolutely it could take into consideration the, the nature of the sensitive allegations, how many plaintiffs there are, the fact that there was absolutely no guidance for the trial courts to be able to distinguish from as applied versus facial challenges. So I think here, this was certainly not a manifest abuse of discretion from the Court of Appeals issuing, issuing the writ. Um, and you know, if, if you accept the, the, the sense separate opinion, uh, reported a dissent, separate opinion, by saying, well, you know, the, the, basically the three-judge panel second look, well, that, that could do it and that could fix it, but that's not going to provide good guidance to the trial courts. It's not going to provide good guidance to the trial courts because it's not binding authority. But we have a court of appeals opinion that's published authority that's providing good guidance to the trial courts. So when you take a look here, under Appellate Rule 21, you had appropriate circumstances that existed. There was no prior guidance. It's a case that has jurisdictional consequences, and you have sensitive allegations. Um, it is certainly not manifestly unsupported by reason. Uh, I know we, we, we heard some argument from my friend for the plaintiff earlier about the facial versus as applied issue. Um, our, our principal position on that issue is that that issue was not addressed specifically. Forget about, forget about jurisdiction for a moment, but just think about you know, specifically in the opinion for purposes of appellate jurisdiction over that issue, there's nothing there that where Judge Carpenter's separate opinion says, I think the wise challenge was facial and here's why. So the, the, the opinion is only based on what, what's in the dissenting opinion. So 
Um, under Rule 16 and Clifford versus Duke, the merits question is not properly before this court in the first instance. But even if it were, was properly before the court, uh, I think for the reasons that I heard earlier in argument when my friend for the plaintiff was arguing are, are correct. We've, we've plainly raised an as-applied constitutional challenge here because we are not attacking the statute itself. We are not contending that no constitutional application of the statute existed. We are but your friend's argument is that if you are right about your constitutional theory that you've raised as a defense, there is no category of person to whom that wouldn't apply. And so that makes it facial. In other words, essentially saying you can't identify a group that's not impacted under your theory. And so that well, you have I, to, even if you say it's as applied, if it applies to everyone, it's facial. So what, what's wrong with that argument? Well, I think there's, there's a few things. I think there's, there's other categories. For example, we're a private defendant versus a public defendant. That's another category uh, you know, of uncertainty that's been raised in some other cases. That's for this court to address, or for the Court of Appeals to address in other cases. But I think the principle is that you know, in the United States Supreme Court in the Sinek-Smith case, Justice Ginsburg writing for a unanimous court, she was troubled by courts when they were not neutral arbiters. She wanted for the courts to rely on the parties to frame the issues for decision, not to impute any challenge, not to take an active role. And I think here, you know, there is not just a categorical look to say, okay, they called it an as-applied challenge, but you know, there's no meat behind the bones. But when, when we were arguing before the, the North Carolina Court of Appeals, I was asked that same question, and I pointed the court to page 91 of the record on appeal. Because in page 91 of the record on appeal, we say, under these portions of the North Carolina Constitution, uh, the YMCA has a vested right to freedom from civil liability after the existing limitation period or repose period has already expired. So we created that, that category within the motion, simply just not, not calling it one. Um, so we're a private party defendant that has only challenged 117E. And I think we heard some mention earlier in argument about the other provisions of the North Carolina Safe Act, uh, revival provisions. But those provisions are necessarily can't be at bar here because we never, we never moved to dismiss based on them because the claim was never brought under those provisions. So that's well beyond this, any scope of this court's review since the, a motion to dismiss was under Rule 1, uh, was under um, 117E only. So that's the only revival statute that's at issue here today. Um, Assuming that we would reach this issue at all concerning as applied versus facial as the type of challenge that it is, uh, wouldn't it be prudent for this court to lean towards looking at this as being as applied if there are elements of each one of these from which the court could choose because courts typically narrow the issues as much as possible so as not to go beyond that which does not need to be addressed. I agree completely, Justice Morgan, with that analysis. I think um, one of the most profound powers of the judicial branch um, in this republic is, is declaring a statute facially unconstitutional. Um, that, that runs contrary to legislative prerogative. I think the best thing to do is to do what this court in Booker versus Duke said when it, it explained the vested right analysis. Booker versus Duke is necessarily applicable here because it explains that the vested rights analysis necessarily and inherently presents as, as an as-applied challenge. Here's a quote from Booker versus Duke. The proper question is when the act as applied will interfere with rights that have vested at the time it took effect. So I think necessarily that shows that the analysis under vested rights is an as-applied one and the, this court should should necessarily also apply principles of judicial restraint to avoid uh, facial challenges if at all possible, assuming the court even thinks that this issue is properly before the court, which we don't think it is. Um, so for, for these reasons articulated here today, uh, we think as a threshold matter, there is no appellate jurisdiction. Um, if there is, this, the merits question of as applied versus facial challenge is not properly before the court under the notice of appeal without any PDR filed as to the additional issues. And under Appellate Rule 21, appropriate circumstances existed on this record in order to provide guidance to the trial court, instruction to the trial court, it being a jurisdictional question um, where we don't want to return these parties to, to the starting line, particularly involving the sensitive issues. And we would respectfully otherwise request that this court affirm the Court of Appeals majority opinion. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal.
Please the court, Chief Justice Newby, Associate Justices. My name is Don Higley. I am from the Alamance County Bar and Lanier Law Group. I represent the nine people who have been discussed here today. The um, All of the rabbit holes that uh, my learned friend have brought us down get easier if we stop and think about what we're asking the court to decide today. There are two conflicting Court of Appeals opinions that exist on the books and published to date. Those opinions deal with a simple issue of who is to decide a facial challenge. That issue needs to be addressed by this court so that we know in the future that we will be in the proper venue, I mean proper subject matter jurisdiction um, to have that decided. That's what we need to resolve here today. And so all you have to do is think about what happened when this General Assembly got together and passed 1-267.1. They wanted more important facial challenges to statutes to be decided by a three-judge panel, which would be appointed by Chief Justice Newby. And it would be geographically diverse, and it would be a better place for an act to be argued about than any place from Murphy to Manio would be. Pot shots from anyone, anywhere. It wanted judicial economy when it passed that statute. To, today is the day that this court can decide on the position of judicial economy and say yes, even if you can technically come up with a rabbit hole and find that some group exists somewhere that would make it not facial, it still goes to the three-judge panel. And that has been done in Kelly, and it's been done over the years, over and over, without any kind of problem. We've agreed to argue it um, in the three-judge panel. In that case, it's too late for my nine clients in this case. But that case is, is going to be decided based on what three judges did in a full day of hearing, in a fully developed record, and it's not going to be just one judge sitting in uh, Alamance County deciding it. And then it's going to come up to the Court of Appeals in June, and they're going to decide, and then this court is going to see if that court correctly assessed the facial validity of this statute. These rabbit holes that we get down don't matter if you, re if you remember the policy that the, that the Assembly was going after when it passed this statute. These rabbit holes are meaningless. The rabbit hole of whether Judge Carpenter decided this case on the basis that it should go to the three-judge panel or not. The rabbit hole of whether we need a specific and distinct reasoning by Judge Carpenter or this, this court won't get involved. That's not what we're here about today. We're here about the simple issue of who has the subject matter jurisdiction to decide this case. And the nine people have waited, as counsel quoted in the brief, that was offered by me now for years and years to find out that it should have been at the three-judge panel because that's what justice requires. I yield my time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone. Clark.